Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Great to see you all here this morning. Um, I was just going to make this quick announcement. A reminder, we uh, have a pause in Grand Rounds for next week, um, as well as for M&M Conference. So we will miss you all next week. Um, hope that um, many of you will have the opportunity to spend the, the week or part of it with your loved ones. Um, and then we'll be back on track the following week. Uh, and I am um, pleased to introduce my section chief, uh, who, who uh, arranged for a great speaker today. Um, James Stahl is an associate professor in um, medicine and as well as the Dartmouth Institute. Uh, he's section chief for general internal medicine. James, come on up and tell us about Dr. Bates. All right, well, thank you for all being here. And I actually, it is really with great pleasure that I, I get to introduce uh, Dr. Bates. Um, I did promise him that I would keep it short. And when you look at Dr. Bates' CV, you can understand why. He's only had maybe what, 800 somewhat publications and is one of the best known researchers in medical inf informatics and patient safety and is internationally renowned for both those things. But beyond that, he's also a professor of medicine at Brigham Women's, chief of their medical uh, section. Uh, but I'll just add a little personal note. I, 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 Dr. Bates and many of my professors growing up, you know, I got to meet many of uh, Dr. Bates's trainees over the years. And I can tell you, I've, I've been a little envious. I think uh, he is clearly a great educator and a great mentor. And uh, I don't think that probably gets said as much uh, as needs to be. And uh, I would uh, uh, certainly welcome any advice that Dr. Bates gives at any, any time. So anyway, to make a l very long story short, Dr. Bates, please. So uh, th thanks so much for having me. It's great to, to, to be here. I'm going to talk about a subject which is, uh, I think, quite relevant today, and, and that will be uh, on, on using big data to improve uh, clinical care. Uh, if we want to begin to leverage things like uh, artificial intelligence, we will need to get to, to having access to very large, uh, large quantities of data. And not all the insights that we'll get from from big data uh, really require uh, artificial intelligence. You can still use traditional techniques, but but uh, it will help us answer many questions that have been hard to answer. Uh, I uh, consult with a number of different companies. The only one I'm going to talk about today is EarlySense, uh, which I do mention in this presentation. I do, do also have research support from, from IBM. We recently uh, formed a, a partnership with them. and, and uh, they're giving us $25 million over a 10-year period to work with them on evaluating IBM Watson. Uh, so I'm going to start by giving you a bit of a backdrop, and then I will uh, describe a, a couple of problems, which I think uh, are, uh, are, are important ones. Then I'm going to spend a good part of the time talking about uh, solutions. I will uh, then talk, talk with you about what the Brigham and partners are actually 
doing. I think it's always useful to see what people, uh, what, what steps people are actually taking to try and uh, um, get past things. Uh, and then I'm going to give you a short synopsis of the infrastructure that you need uh, to do this, uh, which is really important in a place like like Dartmouth, which is you know which is trying to become a learning healthcare system. And then I will wrap up. So where where does the U.S. Uh, sit in the world? Well, uh, you know we, we are basically not very good. We're not very good at quality. Uh, we're not very good at access. Uh, we're at the bottom in terms of efficiency. We're at the bottom in terms of equity. Uh, and our, uh, you know, the only thing we're at the top of is is, uh, is spending the most. Uh, uh, there are ways that one could change this. And and uh, one book that I want to point you towards is this book called Competing on Analytics, The New Science of Winning by Thomas H. Davenport. If you wanted to read a book that would give you some insights uh, into why uh, data and analytics are important, uh, th this is a good one to, to start with. How many of you have either seen Moneyball or have read the book? So almost everybody. Um, it, you know, the, the, the basic uh, precept is, is how the Oakland Athletics took uh, some of the uh, uh, tools of statistics and used them to figure out which uh, players to get. And they based it on, on math and not on who is the biggest or the strongest or who could throw the ball the hardest. And they uh, did very well for, for many years. Actually, they continue to do well. I'm happy to note that the Red Sox uh, have embraced these techniques. And that, that, I think, is actually why we won the championships that we did. Um, you know, Walmart is a company that invests very heavily in, in this area. And you might not think of Walmart as being the kind of company that would do this, but they, they have placed a lot of um, emphasis on it. And I'm going to tell you one story about uh, Walmart. They uh, were trying to figure out what things they should sell if a hurricane was coming. And they had some hypotheses. They thought people would be interested in buying water or flashlights. Uh, when they actually looked at their data to see what people bought the most of, it was strawberry Pop-Tarts and beer. <laughs> now, you could put a lot of smart people in a room for, for a while and try and come up with those answers. And, you know, you might not get to that. But, you know, the next time a hurricane was coming, they load up, loaded up a bunch of semis and sent them off to the, where the hurricane was and, and made a lot of money as a result. Um, you know, Watson is uh, the, the effort to do this, the biggest effort so far to do this in healthcare. IBM has invested a, a great deal in Watson. It's had, as I'm sure you've uh, read, uh, kind of mixed results so far. They focused in particular on oncology. And their goal has been to take the world literature on oncology and then make it make it available to, to people, and uh, and the, you know there's there's still that's that's still been a, been a struggle, and I, uh, we're going to be working with them and hope to uh, help them identify solutions that will be really more useful to providers than than what has been uh, developed so far. Uh, so, how do you think about big data? Well, uh, big data are are, are really big. Uh, a large novel is about a megabyte. Uh, a, a gig is about the amount of information in the human genome. A terabyte is the annual world literature uh, uh, production. A petabyte is all the uh, all the U.S. Ac information on all the U.S. academic research libraries, and an exabyte is two thirds of the annual production of information. Uh, uh, in, in, in the world. Um, and big data have been heavily hyped. This is a, a, a cover of Nature. 
but you know we're getting data from many many different sources uh, i'm going to talk mostly about the electronic health record but there's also genetic and genomic information diagnostics uh, information data that's coming from mobile devices and increasingly things that are coming from wearables and satellite and video uh, and even social media and retail and this has uh, th there's some implications uh, so now everybody in the U.S. essentially is using electronic health records. We have lots of electronic uh, clinical data that's available from both inside the hospital, increasingly from outside the hospital, which we have not had so much. Uh, another thing that's happened is that natural language processing <coughs> techniques are sufficiently good that they can go through a blob of text and figure out what the important concepts are, and that's, that's pretty seamless. And then there are all these other data sources from outside that, that, you, can, uh, that you can link to. Um, a few of the key big data concepts are, are as follows. One, uh, you need a data warehouse. Uh, you want to, within your data warehouse, have a series of data marts. So you probably will have, for example, an oncology data mart, and a cardiology data mart, and a variety of different data marts that which take care of different users. Uh, data lakes are another important uh, concept. So you, you probably will want to have data sets that are pretty much unrelated to your, your main data set. Uh, here in New Hampshire, an important data set, for example, is the weather. If you know what's going on with the weather, you can predict many things that will happen in the healthcare center. Because when there are certain weather events, uh, you know, as you know, as, as certain things happen or, or don't happen. Uh, the, the data have to be, uh, with, with big data techniques, the data have to be much less clean than they did in the old days. And we've spent all this time uh, obsessing about getting clean data. Uh, it will be a long time before we have truly clean data. But uh, big data techniques are pretty tolerant of, uh, of dirty data. Um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, as I alluded to earlier, are, are coming fast. And they, uh, it, that, this comes in several flavors. Uh, you can use uh, unsupervised techniques where you just take a data set and you uh, sick the artificial intelligence on it and see what insights come out. Uh, it can be semi-supervised where you do a little bit of supervision or you can uh, supervise it and tell it what things you want, want to ask. Uh, deep learning is a really important technique and many of the uh, most important insights have come through deep, deep learning approaches. That's what's being used, for example, to uh, 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 set up self-driving cars, that, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, you can either use simple algorithms or more complex algorithms. Most of the things that, that are the most powerful are, are more complex, but the, the advantage of simple algorithms uh, is that you can then explain it to providers. And providers still like to uh, at least have some explanation of why the model generated the prediction that it did. Uh, that's something that eventually I think we're going to have to let go of a little bit, actually. Um, but but um, that, there's a lot of conversation about that. And then finally, uh, if you look methodologically at what what where people fall down the most in evaluating uh, approaches like this, it's in validation. Uh, you always have to validate your model. Uh, when you develop a model, you develop it in one data set. It always reflects the idiosyncrasies of that data set, and it performs better in that data set than it does when you take it uh, anyplace else. Um, and, you know, when you look at papers in this area, many of them just do not really uh, do a good job of validating things. And, and, and they make claims that are unreasonable as a result. Now, in the research front, uh, big data is, is already actually absolutely uh, pivotal. 
at the Brigham, we have a, we have a variety of different uh, things that are that we've made big investments in. There's a pathology ePath program. There's an immunology big data genomic uh, a program, and and groups like like this need massive sets of organized data to be able to uh, generate new insights. Uh, Collaboration is enhanced by sharing large uh, uh, data sets. I2B2 is one effort to uh, uh, to share data across many uh, institutions, and I'm pretty sure you participate in I2B2. Uh, this can also help with longstanding problems like phenotype association with omics and imaging, and it's really a key strategy for gathering data for public health. Um, and for some time at Partners, we've had this uh, this thing called the uh, RPDR, the Research Patient Data Repository. This was set, set up by Sean Murphy and his group, and it basically uh, it takes an extract of all our clinical data and is set up so that you can sit down at your desk and within about a minute ask a question like, how many people were seen at Partners in the last year who had heart failure and were on an ACE inhibitor and had a potassium above, above six, that kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, now, if you want to get identified data, you have to then go through the IRB. But it's very valuable to have a, have a tool like that. And this is uh, now being expanded, uh, you know, really substantially. And uh, the, the new uh, entity is called the Partners Big Data Commons. Uh, and there are a variety of chunks that are being added to that. So there's a notes repository, there are imaging data, there's biobank data. Um, Sean has developed a, a, a thing that they're calling the, bio, the Phenotype Discovery Center, in which there's a biobank uh, portal, and that's uh, linked to, to the RPDR. It's linked to various scientific repositories. And, and again, you know, this kind of tool will be extremely valuable for asking an array of, of questions. Okay, so um, now let's move over to, to, uh, to clinical care. Uh, this is a paper from Daphne and Moda in which they asked uh, what areas in the what, what healthcare sectors need the most uh, disruptive innovation and uh, health health hospitals and health systems were at the top. Sixty five percent of people said that that we needed uh, disruptive uh, innovation and healthcare IT was was uh, number two on, on this list. So now I'm going to take you through a few uh, pro examples of problems. Um, one area that we've focused on recently is the app marketplace. Uh, there's, there are several hundred thousand health apps now and just billions of dollars going into this uh, area. Uh, um, but let me just ask, how many of you have prescribed a health app to a patient? There are only a few hands going up. Uh, you know, and I think in a, in a couple of years, I would hope that, that, that everybody would be raising their hands if, you know, if you're, a, if you're a, a, a doctor who prescribes. Uh, but the issue today is that most of the apps that are out there are not targeted at the chronically ill, and they probably are not usable by the sickest patients. Uh, we did a review of health apps for the chronically ill. What we found was consumers' ratings were really quite poor indications of the apps, either clinical utility or usability, and uh, most of the apps did not respond appropriately when the user entered uh, potentially dangerous health information. So they could say, uh, I'm about to commit suicide, and the health app would do nothing. That, that is just, you know, not good. Or you could put in a glucose of one, and, uh, and the health app would not tell you to, to go take some action. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, here's, here's some more detailed data. Uh, we looked in at, we, we asked, uh, were clinical experts and patients involved in app development or in quality uh, control? And uh, it, clinical experts were, were only involved in 22%. 
and patients were only involved in 11% of these apps. I mean, most people are just developing apps uh, themselves without talking, hard to believe as it may seem, with even with any clinical experts or, or, or patients. And that, I think, it is a large part of the explanation about why they're so poor. Uh, in addition, we asked, did the app reward the user for engaging with the app or achieving health goals? That, they did that only 22% of the time. One of the things that's really clear is uh, for an app to be sticky, for people to continue to use it, you've got to reward the person who's, uh, who's using it. We then uh, looked at the usability of commercially available applications for diverse patients. This is work that was led by Dr. Ermi Malasarkar out at UCSF. And we looked at three groups. Uh, there were nine caregivers, 10 patients with depression, 10 with diabetes. We were get, they gave them condition-specific tasks like enter your blood glucose. That's about the most basic task. Now, people could only complete that particular task 43% of the time without assistance. I mean, that, that is, which is just awful. Uh, there were a few key themes when we talked to people. Uh, they didn't feel confident with the technology. They were frustrated with design features and navigation. And yet, uh, virtually to a person, they all expressed interest in having technology to support their self-management. So, so uh, you know, people really do want help with these things, but they just feel like they're not getting it from what's, uh, what's being delivered. Um, here's another example. This is from uh, Dr. Raj Ratwani, who's down at MedStar. Uh, and he's looked at, at how well the vendors are doing with implementing user-centered design. Uh, this is actually required as part of meaningful use. What, what user-centered design means is you have to have users involved when you're, when you're building screens, when you're building your application. Um, and what they found when they studied these vendors were that they fell into three categories. Uh, just a, a couple actually had well-developed user-centered design. Uh, so more had basic user-centered design, which it was that they understood the importance, but they weren't actually really using it. And then a large number uh, were not using user-centered design at all, even though, even though it was required. Um, and I think that sort of thing is part of what explains why the systems that we use on a regular basis, you know, Epic, Epic included, uh, fall so short on the, on the design uh, side. So what are some what are some uh, solutions here? Uh, well, um, this is a paper that we wrote on uh, on on what the use cases that big data would be most useful for in the relatively uh, near term. It was in uh, health affairs a couple of years ago, uh, and we argued that there are six use cases that are particularly prominent now. Uh, one is high cost patients, and I'll tell you what we're doing about that. The second is uh, readmissions. We're very heavily to to try and reduce our readmission rate. That's a big goal at most, uh, most centers. Uh, doing a better job with triage decisions is another uh, area. Finding patients who are decompensating is uh, a very big frontier, and I'll talk about that. Uh, predicting who's going to suffer an adverse event is also, also important. And then finally, uh, treatment optimization is extremely important. That's especially important for uh, patients with chronic diseases, many of whom are getting uh, expensive therapies. So why uh, high-cost high patients? Uh, uh, roughly 5% of patients, at least in a Medicare population, account for about half of the spending. And if you're put at risk for a population, the very first thing that you want to do typically is to identify that group and then, and then uh, work with them. Uh, you have to get data about uh, mental health, about socioeconomic status, about marital and living status, 
we often are not as good maybe as we should be about collecting that, that kind of information. Uh, and then you want to uh, try and identify what for an individual is there the specific issue that, that they have. What is, what is their, their need in, in gap or gap? And if you could do that, that would make managing them much, much more cost effective. So I'll, I'll tell you about how, how we do this. Um, we use a tool called the, the LACE to stratify data for a population when we, when we get a population that we're at risk for. We take claims data from the last 12 months, uh, uh, use clinical conditions from a list of about 30, categorize them according to severity, high, moderate, or low, and then take combinations of, of con conditions from each category to de uh, determine the level of complexity. And things like hospitalizations or ER visits or other types of utilization trigger inclusion. We do let the docs say, you know, look, I know about this patient. They're not going to benefit from this program. And that has been very helpful. We also let people uh, under limited circumstances add people to this, to this uh, group, although uh, the physicians would like to add many more people than we can, we can afford to, to add. Um, we're managing uh, about 3,000 patients currently uh, at the Brigham. Uh, most of them are, are women, 61%. Their mean age is 71. 32% uh, have a mental health uh, diagnosis, and probably even a higher proportion have some sort of uh, mental health issue. And, you know, what we found is if you don't uh, have approaches for managing that, it's very hard to, to get any benefit uh, um, through other types of management. They take an average of 17 drugs. Uh, their uh, per member per month is around $2,000. That's two to four th times higher than average. And hospital admissions account for over half the cost. So that was the first area that we uh, elected to focus on. Um, some of the infrastructure that we put in place is we, you know, we have a, we have a registry. There are electronic health record tools. There's an icon uh, to to encourage communication. Make sure the providers know the patient is uh, is in that group. And uh, this has been, you know, really uh, positively received. And what we've showed is has been that we were able to reduce the uh, the inpatient uh, inpatient admission rate for this uh, for this population. Um, we, uh, in, in this period, we had roughly an 18% reduction. That 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 uh, uh, percent has has actually continued to fall. And this is the single uh, sort of biggest uh, thing that we've done in in our uh, managed managed care populations. Um, the, the way that we, we do it is every patient is assigned a care coordinator. Uh, I think we could be much more efficient if we were using some analytics on top of this to help the care coordinators figure out exactly what the, what the need is of, of the individual patients. Because it's often something like food insecurity or housing or, or that kind of thing. And we should be able to work that out. Um, Readmissions are important. CMS has strongly incentivized us to try and reduce their frequency. Um, uh, the, the, the big issue here, of course, is that many of these are not really uh, preventable. Uh, we find that only, only about 25 or 35, 30% of ours are, are preventable. Uh, everybody should be using an algorithm to try and predict the frequency. Here, I think key differentiators will be tailoring intervention, interventions to the individual patient. Uh, making sure that uh, patients actually get their intended intervention. We, we put together a package of, uh, of six things that we tried to use as a, a readmission bundle. Uh, and we found we couldn't do all six of those, so then we've reduced it to four. Uh, but one of them, for example, is trying to make sure that the patient sees, if, if it's important for them, that they see a patient that, that, uh, that they see a doctor that they have a relationship with 
within a week. Uh, you know, and that is like, it, it's easy to say, it's much harder to actually accomplish it. Often patients would get an appointment, but they would know uh, very well that they were like not going to go to that appointment because they didn't have anybody to take them or uh, it was inconvenient, but they, they just accept the appointment. And when we looked to see you know, how many actually showed up, it was, it was a pretty low uh, proportion. Um, triage is another really important area. And here, the key things are estimating risk of com complications at times like admission, evaluation, transfer. <coughs> transfer. Uh, if you're going to do well with this, you have to have a detailed guideline that uh, clarifies how the algorithm will inform care. For example, you know, if the, if the algorithm says this, then you should admit to an intermediate care unit, that kind of thing. Uh, some of the best work in this area has been done by Kaiser, and they've uh, have done some really terrific work, for example, on evaluating newborns for early onset sepsis, uh, and also on using emergency department composite scores to predict which patients from the ED are going to decompensate later. Uh, decompensation is also an important frontier, as I mentioned. And uh, the biggest area where I think there's potential benefit here is monitoring patients, uh, especially outside uh, ICUs. You can track lots of parameters with tools like wearables or even non-contact devices. And you can also use multiple parameters simultaneously, especially in ICUs. Uh, so uh, we've worked with a company called uh, EarlySense. They make this uh, device uh, down here at the bottom, which basically sits between the mattress and the bed so the patient doesn't ever touch it. And it measures the patient's pulse, their respiratory rate, and it tells you how much they're moving. So it collects that information. Uh, some processing is done in the background, which involves uh, using, using a little bit of art artificial intelligence. Uh, they then, if they find a signal that they think is real, uh, send a message to the provider's phone. So you get a message on your phone saying, go take a look at Mr. Jones, the heart rate is high. Uh, and this has, has, uh, has been very uh, positively received. Uh, one, one area that it works especially well for is the the respiratory rate, um, and probably most of you, you know, who work clinically know this, but nurses generally don't really measure the respiratory rate. Uh, but, you know, if somebody starts breathing really fast or really slowly, that usually indicates that there's something important wrong with them. And, you know, and if you go check those patients out, it's, it's helpful. Now, we evaluated this. Uh, we looked at in a, a small hospital in the Los Angeles area, Looked at roughly uh, 7,000 patients and med surge units, and uh, and what we found was that with continuous monitoring like this, there was a small reduction in the length of stay for for patients on that unit, nine percent, but there was a 45 percent reduction in the number of days that patients spend in the ICU subsequently, and the reason is you you find people earlier when they are when they're deteriorating, and there was an 86 percent reduction in the code blue uh, rate. So, you know, really a substantial reduction. Uh, we also looked at the alerts and, and how well they, they worked. And there were only two alerts for every 100 recording hours, and 50% resulted in nurse action. Now, that is just wildly different than uh, our usual monitoring, like pulse ox, telemetry, and cardiac monitoring, which have between 160 and 730 alerts per 100 hours, and a very small proportion result in action. Uh, you know, we need to basically go through all our alerting approaches and, and kind of turn down the, the, the frequency with which they're going off. We did an economic analysis of this uh, smart mon monitor, 
And we found that in the base case, this paid for itself within a half a year. And even using conservative assumptions, it paid for itself within three quarters of a year. That was uh, modeling basically only on, based on ICU length of stay and pressure ulcers. Um, um, adverse events, again, are an, an important, uh, important opportunity. Uh, the, some of the ones that I think are the lowest hanging fruit are renal failure. Uh, and changes in renal function are often apparent before the patient truly, you know, heads, heads south. Um, infection, uh, using things like combinations of vital signs and related parameters can help uh, identify patients who, who, who are infected. And then the example is heart rate variability in low, low birth weight infants. Uh, and then adverse drug events. Uh, I, th I think we'll be able to predict which patients may be likely to experience ad adverse drug events, especially using genetic and genomic and, and combined with clinical information. Um, diseases that affect multiple organ systems are, are really important. These uh, conditions are really costly. If we could project, predict people's trajectory, that would let us uh, target some ex uh, complex and expensive therapies to patients who would benefit uh, the most. And registries like the Cornet can also be leveraged because they uh, hold, hold longitudinal data. We're, we're increasingly being, being confronted with new, new drugs. So, for example, biologics have just come out for psoriasis. How do we, how do we use those in a rational way? Um, you know, that's, that's a hard kind of question for, for organizations, uh, you know, like, like ours. Um, where I hope we're going is that we'll be able to take these predictive analytics and they'll be uh, uh, integrated directly into, into uh, the care, care that we uh, deliver. And we coined this term uh, precision delivery. Um, we're, a, we're a ways from that, but, but, uh, but our hope is that we'll be able to use electronic health record big data to take predictive analytics and then use them at the point of care to help people make, make uh, better choices. Um, here's here's uh, one example of this. Uh, Kaiser uh, did this. They used maternal health, health plan data to estimate the probability of early onset uh, neonatal sepsis prior to birth. They then integrated that with objective clinical data from the newborn at birth, predicted the uh, sepsis probability, and then they used this information to figure out, should we give this uh, uh, neonate antibiotics or not? They showed that they, they spare about 250,000 neonates uh, antibiotics at birth annually by, by using that algorithm, and they have a number of other ones uh, like that. Um, so here, here's an example of the kind of clinical case that I, I think we could use some help with. Um, you have a 58-year-old man with hypertension. They're on four drugs, hydrochlorothiazide, amlodipine, labetalol, spironolactone. Their blood pressure is 165 or over 96. Their creatinine clearance is 42. They've coughed with an ACE and an ARB. Um, this is the kind of situation that in primary care we encounter all the time. It is really hard to uh, decide what, what to do next. And... Uh, and, you know, if we had some help, I, I think it, it, it would be useful. Um, some of the questions that come up clinically are, is the patient really taking all these drugs? I mean, often you suspect that, that they tell you that they're taking them, but they're not really taking them. Uh, second, you know, what drugs should you use if you're going to add something? Uh, many of the things that you might add, you know, could, could make them sick. Uh, should we be doing something like ambulatory blood, blood pressure monitoring? And is this just uh, white coat hypertension and, and, and so on? Uh, and this is the kind of thing that, that I hope that tools like, like uh, Watson might be useful for uh, in, in the future. Um, 
As the study that we've done recently that, that I got most excited about is, is uh, this one. It's a study called the Prospect Study, which stood for Promoting Respect and Ongoing Safety Through Patient Engagement, Communication, and Technology. We did this study in uh, intensive care and in oncology and uh, basically implemented a patient-centered intervention focused both on patients and care partners. And uh, this, this uh, study had, had basically two sets of tools. There were some provider-facing tools and, and patient-facing uh, tools. We used uh, uh, two models. One is something that's uh, called the patient-satisfactive model. And here the, the basic concept is uh, both both providers, both uh, nurses and doctors say that we should be asking routinely uh, patients what they expect. But then if we ask nurses and doctors, do you ask patients uh, what, you know, what to expect? They, they say, no, we're, we're too busy to do that. Um, so, so this uh, basically you know, teaches nurses in particular to ask patients about what they're expecting. And then we also built this technology-oriented uh, set of tools, uh, the web-based patient-centered toolkit, which I will, I will show you. Um, we did have to get a patient or healthcare proxy uh, consent for, for patients to be allowed to basically use this, this uh, patient portal. Uh, but here's what the patient uh, the patients uh, oriented tools uh, looked like. We asked patients what they wanted, and, and this, is, this is what they said they wanted. They wanted to know who was on their care team. They wanted to be able to send and receive messages. They wanted uh, some information about uh, how safe the care that they were getting was. They wanted to be able to look at their tests, their, their drugs, um, some information about their, their food, uh, some discharge information, and so on. We were able to uh, deliver all this. We did this actually just before we implemented EPIC, so we had to turn it off after we uh, implemented EPIC. Um, but, you know, but, uh, you know it, was, it was very positively received. Another thing that we built, which, uh, which we actually have built now within EPIC, is a, uh, a unit-level uh, dashboard. So uh, here what we did was uh, basically look at all the things. Uh, this is for the ICU. Looked at all the things that, that uh, you, should, you should be doing. There are a variety of, of uh, different uh, bundles and checklists that people are supposed to be following. And there, and uh, up so that uh, you're either red, yellow, or green. Uh, uh, we built this uh, outside Epic, but when you use it, it looks like you think you're in Epic. Um, so, so that's that's been well well received. And here's what the patient level uh, dashboard looks like. Uh, here, the patient is Hermione Granger. Uh, you can see that most of this looks good, but there's one area which, where where things are red. Uh, uh, she's had a urinary catheter in that's been in too long, and that should be taken out. Uh, this just makes it very easy to figure out for an individual patient. What are the things that uh, that need to be addressed? Um, here are the results uh, from our ICU. Uh, this is published in Critical Care in 2017, and we showed that the harm rate fell by about a third when we uh, put this in place. The uh, patient satisfaction level uh, increased from 72% to 93%. So that's a, a bigger jump than we've ever ever seen actually with any other similar intervention. Uh, the satisfaction of care partners also increased. Um, there was a modest increase in the global concordance around uh, around goals, uh, although still we, we just went up from 27 to 34%. So still often the care team and the patient are not exactly on the same page in terms of goals. We did not see any change in, in, uh, in resource utilization. Um, okay. 
So now I'm going to switch over and, and just basically talk about, about what we're uh, actually doing, again, because I, I think it's uh, helpful to do that. Um, we've had a, a long history of, of leveraging data for decision-making. The tool that we've used for a long time is something called the Balanced Scorecard, which includes data mostly from the hospital. It lets you do some ad, uh, ad hoc, uh, look at ad hoc data and do analysis throughout our, our hospital. There's two-dimensional reporting. There's a little bit of interactive analysis capabilities, but not too much. Uh, what we want to go to is we want to enable predictive modeling, uh, be able to look at what's going on both inside the institution and then outside it to try and predict the, the future, uh, do a better job with appropriate staffing levels given the future state, uh, and, and be able to use more complex uh, statistical analyses. Uh, some of the sample projects include looking at the uh, obstetric inpatient set, uh, uh, census, looking at uh, high-risk uh, care coordination interventions, uh, looking at decompensation, uh, uh, looking at how we're doing on bundled uh, performance, uh, and, and then, and then uh, we're going to basically scrap the balanced scorecard and, and put in a new uh, put in a new application. Um, to enable this, uh, if you're going to do this, you need some uh, some front-end tools. So we have several approaches here. Uh, we allow people to bring their own tools if they're if they're able to manage that. Or there's a managed access gateway with something called ClickView, which is pretty easy to use. Almost anybody could use that. And then uh, we also have a, a, bus a business objects, which is another a tool for which is a little more complicated to use than 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 uh, ClickView. And you can either go into our main data warehouse, which is called the Enterprise Data Warehouse, or EDW, and that includes uh, um, data from Epic, but also data from uh, from payers and from a variety of other sources. Um, the, the, our Epic database is, is called Clarity. I'm sure you use the, the, the same thing. And uh, in Business Objects lets you, you basically go into Clarity and, and ask questions. Um, We've made the argument that, that every healthcare organization needs a data science strategy going forward. And yet, you know, I, I would submit that most organizations, even big uh, academic organizations like this one, may, you know, may or may not have that as well uh, defined as, as, as it should be. But this is a key to, uh, to moving forward in the, in the new world. Uh, if you're going to do this, you, the, some of the, the basic precepts are you need a data, data warehouse, you need data marts, you need analytic tools. You also need some front-end and presentation tools so that you can make information available up to people. We're, we're, we're increasingly using Tableau, which is a powerful tool, uh, uh, which, which lets you do that, although we're kind of sort of scratching the surface in terms of how we're using it. Um, you need registries, uh, which ideally should be available to frontline uh, providers. And then uh, you also need interfaces to monitoring devices. We somehow neglected the budget for uh, interfaces to our monitoring devices when we put, uh, in our EPIC implementation. Um, and they have lots of very useful information that they are churning out all the time. Um, I would argue that data and analytics are going to be foundational in every care redesign effort going, going forward. If we can basically put in place some, base, some infrastructure here will be able to do much more. Uh, at the Brigham, we had a pretty good view of care inside the hospital, but that was really uh, pretty inadequate for accountable care. We had almost no data from outside the hospital, and most of the costs for patients are, are actually out of the hospital, and we're planning to make a substantial investment in this area. 
Uh, in addition, you need real-time data to make use of re machine learning and real-time uh, data analytics. And, and Epic does not make it easy to get uh, real-time data. Uh, Clarity basically refreshes once a day. You know, that is hopeless if you're trying to predict, uh, you know, who's going to decompensate in the next half hour. Uh, so, so you need an approach for, for getting, getting data out. We're still uh, working on that. Uh, you also uh, really need to manage access effectively to the various uh, databases. And this has been something that we've gotten uh, stuck on. Uh, Epic does not include very good tools for art auditing who, who went in to, uh, to, to various things. And, and that has uh, led our organization to really kind of not allow very many people into some of the key um, databases. And that, that is a problem. Uh, so to wrap up, clinical data are now nearly ubiquitous in this country. The levels of adoption are over 95% in both hospitals and in the outpatient setting. And I would, yet I would submit that most organizations have not figured out how to best uh, leverage these data. Uh, every organization needs to invest. You need a data strategy. Um, I, I, I uh, want to emphasize that little data are still really important, and there are many, many things you can learn from small uh, populations of patients. But I would suggest that big data approaches are going to result in many insights in both clinical care and research, and that that, that will help us do uh, even better. Uh, healthcare is truly at the beginning here. If you look at every other industry, they're way deeper into this than, than we are. Um, I do think this is going to help both the point of care and from the population uh, perspective. I've given you a few of the examples that I think are most likely to bear fruit early on, but there, there are innumerable other things that we could have talked about. Uh, and then uh, finally, for, for improving predictions, I think that some of the novel sources are the most likely to uh, uh, provide uh, marginal improvement, things like uh, uh, data, uh, social media data or, or mobile data. Uh, and we will increasingly have uh, access to that kind of information, although it raises lots of, uh, lots of ethical concerns. So I will stop there and take some questions. Questions for Dr. Oh, that was a really interesting presentation. It strikes me that when you do projects in some of these things, by the time you finish the project, projects have the you know, technology that moved on. So when you talk about artificial intelligence, are you talking about self-improving <coughs> infrastructure that will be able to keep up with innovations? Well, um, we clearly need to, to move to that. Um, but if you know, if you look at what is actually implemented in organizations around the country, almost none of it is is uh, is uh, learning in real time. And you you need uh, you need a particular infrastructure to deal with that. Then uh, uh, there are issues like how do you, how you regulate uh, that, and and that's that's kind of still being worked out. Um, so we will eventually get to that. Um, but it's not exactly clear uh, how long that will take. I, you know, I think it'll be a few years. One of the things that's pretty clear is that we still have institutions trying to put this stuff together sort of by themselves, right? And if you're the Brigham or partners, you have a set of resources to do that. If you're in a different place, it's different. One of the things that our favorite vendor, Epic, is trying to do, as you know, is sort of try to do big data altogether. What, what is your level of optimism or pessimism that the, that our shared vendor is going to, in meaningful ways, sort of 
help us create some of these tools so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel all over again everywhere? Yeah, I went in uh, uh, moderately optimistic about about uh, the ability of Epic to do that, and I, I'm not optimistic anymore. I think we should do this uh, ourselves. Um, I do think we should be be collaborating, um, and I know about Epic's uh, uh, big data efforts, um, but I, you know, would would really, uh, you know, prefer to do it. Uh, outside of epic at this point I just don't don't think we're going to get there as fast as as uh, as I would like or as, as will be good for us if we if we do it with them um, thank you um, question about uh, the um, RPDR hmm. um, we're trying to do a kind of a shared uh, data source for our researchers uh, because we have a unique relationship with Geisel and they're actually in a separate organizational structure than Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and there's a firewall that sometimes feels insurmountable to access the data. And a lot of our junior researchers really want to actually um, swim around in that data for a while. Now, did you develop this to actually create that environment, number one? And number two, what are your thoughts on all these other data sets? You know, we're struggling with the maintenance of high-value healthcare, which has six large health systems dumping their data into a data set. And they're talking about, you know, making a joint venture and, and monetizing it. So um, we're just trying to kind of identify what's right for the organization and our providers in both the clinical warehouse, data warehouse, as well as all these other things swirling. Yeah, so so in terms of the clinical data warehouse, I'd say uh, yes. And, and the, I, I think... Uh, Sean Murphy and his team really did a masterful job of setting that up and kind of dealing with all the issues around firewalls and so forth that you you, you need to manage. And I would encourage your team to to talk talk with them because uh, it's it's just been enormously successful, and I'm I'm confident you you'll you know benefit from doing a similar thing. Uh, the whole question of uh, of taking data from multiple sources and then monetizing it, I think, is a, a pretty difficult one for most organizations. We've taken the position that we don't want to sell our, our data, and I think it's uh, probably better for organizations to to, uh, to not uh, do that. Uh, uh, but, you know, that is that is a really uh, sort of thorny set of issues, and, and all the, the sort of the big four, uh, you know, which, uh, uh, you know, which include Amazon and Microsoft and, and so on, are, are as, as you've read, you know, making various plays in this area, and and uh, and uh, you know, I, I just think we have to watch that and be judicious, and and I would try to retain control of our of our of our own data. Thank you. So, yeah. So, uh, did I, I should say that having used RPDR, it's a fantastic tool. I, I use it all the time. So I just wanted to expand a little bit on a couple of the points that were raised already. So a lot of the work that you presented is research that is um, trialed and then expanded upon in operational settings. Um, we do a lot of that work here, and I'm very curious to understand um, how the governance structure looks like in your organization to um, select and prioritize those initiatives and how you work with operations to then, um, in a thought, um, introduce new technologies and then collect the data and then move them to operations. So 
Yeah, a great, great question, and that is super, super important. And I, I guess uh, uh, we've we've had a, a couple of different structures for a long time. We had uh, uh, several councils, uh, a, a research council, an innovation council, a clinical council that all worked on issues related to eCare. Those councils uh, uh, did the job of of uh, evaluating each of these uh, projects and then prioritizing them. Um, we recently made the call to dissolve all those councils, and uh, now we have one group that is uh, is kind of managing all of that, and I and that is not really working so well. There's there's like way, way too much stuff for that this one group to to manage, and uh, so we have not hit on the right organizational uh, structure around around managing that. I I, I would say, uh, yeah. Um, and the other thing that I think we have not done as well with is, as we sh we should have, which which your question gets at, is uh, taking the things that work and then having a mechanism for spreading them. Because we've had some that you know really work uh, quite well. I think a key differentiator between organizations that do well not too far down the road and those that don't is is our ability to do that, and and we need to we need to uh, build that build that out. Uh, and but that's that's uh, you know not easy. Um, we, we, there are active conversations around building a mechanism to do that, but but I, we don't have it in place uh, today. Thank you. I wonder if you could comment on the general problem that I affectionately call like the needle in the stack problem. And for me, what that means in my life as a general practitioner or in primary care as a general internist is I've got a giant in basket and I find myself spending a lot of time going through the whole thing to find the one thing that really matters. It's inefficient and I noticed that you kind of addressed that or you definitely did with your ICU program that that ICU nurse had one red box that said here's where you should be doing right now and first and most importantly and has that kind of approach or are there strategies for that in other settings to to bring to the top of the pile the things that that deserve the most attention soonest. Yeah, I think we definitely need to do a much better job with that. We actually had done that with the with the inbox for lab before we converted to Epic, and then we kind of lost all our, our prioritization um, after after we made the conversion. And we did it just using a rule based uh, approach. So you can, with a rule based approach, for example, you know, figure out which labs are, are most important. Turns out for radiographs, it's much more complicated. You have to use some natural language processing and so forth. That's not insurmountable, but it's like it's a much bigger, bigger task. Um, but you know, this this is the kind of thing that artificial intelligence is ideally suited for. And we should we should be doing something to basically go through the things in the end basket and figure out you know which ones appear to be the ones that are that are the most important, and those should just rise to the top. That 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 is that that is the kind of use case that would be uh, clinically like incredibly helpful, yeah. and and it wouldn't be that hard from the AI uh, perspective. And thanks for a very high value presentation. Um, I have a question about algorithms. We know that that systematic bias and institutionalized bias can account for a lot of health disparities. Can you address the risks that algorithms will reinforce those biases rather than um, getting around them or, and, and recognizing them? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that too. Uh, you probably saw the recent science publication on this topic. Um, 
Um, and, you know, the, I think there's a very real risk that, that algorithms, uh, you know, can, can uh, uh, reinforce biases and, and, and create new problems and that we need to come up with some approaches uh, to proactively uh, uh, try, and, try and deal, deal with that. Um, the best mechanisms for doing that are, are, are not completely clear, but, but, uh, but I, I think it's one of the big problems that we need to address over the sort of the next five to ten years. I just have a couple of questions about the early sense device, and maybe mm. some of this is proprietary, but one is just how does it gather that sort of data from underneath the mattress in terms of respiratory rate, and then how, how does it make decisions only alert nurses two, two times out of 100 hours? That seems like it must be making some decisions about what's important. It is, yeah. So, so it... it I, I don't fully understand how it works. It's uh, it's piezo piezo electronic, um, and it and it uh, basically is measuring uh, how the how the patient is uh, is moving. It, it can do other things. It can handle even two people in a bed, that kind of thing, which is kind of mind blowing. Uh, uh, it, but you know the the way that it it, it gets to the two the the two alerts per hundred hours is. Uh, is by going through uh, the information and and uh, and basically you know looking for situations in which say it looks like the patient just got out of bed or the leads fell off or, or that that kind of thing happened and uh, and it, it, it's it's the AI that they use uh, they they do take about thirty seconds uh, to to do that and and so they wait a little bit while they're doing all this processing to make the call uh, but that I think has been enormously useful, and it's, it's you know, sort of part of their secret sauce. Yeah, I know, I know nurses here, the Massimo devices are sort of just constantly paging. It, it, exactly. You know, and, and I, this is not the only device like this. There are other devices. There, there are other things that, for example, that you can wear and so forth. But we should be doing more monitoring in the not-too-distant future than, than we are today. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm observing with interest, too. Um, they, they've done a, a very eclectic array of things I, so far, I have to say. I mean, they've done things... Um, around around uh, uh, trying to f figure out uh, uh, you know the issues around diabetic eye exams. Um, it turns out that there are now uh, algorithms that can can look at retinal photographs and do a very good job of figuring out who has diabetic uh, retinopathy. So that's been one big project. Another big project focused focused on uh, vaccines for for a number of viral diseases. And uh, it, it, it seems like they've just done uh, a set of things that are not uh, not perhaps uh, uh, that coherent. Um, and I think we're all waiting to see what are they going to do that that uh, that you know will be uh, a, a little more of a sort of a unifying field theory. Uh, but that's not not apparent to me, and it's not apparent from the public statements that they've made. Okay, there are a few minutes. Uh, one, uh, one last question, then. Thank you for your talk. Um, 
You know, I think one of the challenges as a clinician is the chart has a lot of information, and some of it conflicts, and much of it is missing. And when the patient arrives, you can work through it with the patient to find out what's actually happening. So while big data, I think, has a lot of promise and is very exciting, I fear that there's information that's being left out. And at the same time, we know that asking clinicians to document more and more takes away from face time with patients, makes the patients unhappy with their care, and leads to burnout. So how do you see this moving forward into the future? How can we improve the the validity of the data and the comprehension without turning clinicians into data generators. Yeah, that, that's, this is a problem that I think we, we're going to be able to handle actually, uh, you know, pr pretty soon. One of the things that, uh, that tools like this are, are really good at is going through and looking for, for sort of needles in the, in the haystack, or, you know, things that are really important that you should be paying attention to, and then surfacing those. Uh, and, and, you know, making them apparent to the clinicians. Uh, we're uh, uh, doing some work on auto-summarization of, of, of certain things. You know, and for a given problem, there are eight things that you know that you need to know. Uh, but now you have to go out and hunt for them. So the computer can do that for you and, and just sort of bring all that together. Um, and it, and, and, and uh, if it finds something that, you know that that is that is important. Say a patient is getting narcotics from multiple multiple sites. That's the kind of thing that you we we all want to know about. Uh, you know we should just be 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 told about that. If if uh, you know if it's if if it's if it's uh, something that's uh, that's present. So I, you know I'm I'm actually you know moderately optimistic about making progress in that area. We're we're doing some work uh, with IBM on that issue right now. So it's practically nine o'clock. I think Dr. Bates can have a few minutes afterwards, but I think we're going to finish with public questions. Thank you. Thank you.